0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, welcome in the name of the Lord. Happy New Year. I hope your New Year has started off well. If you are visiting with us today, uh, we want to get to know you a little bit better. There's visitor's cards up by the front entrance or on um, the bulletin, there's a QR code. You can scan the QR code and let us know of your presence, we'd love to get you to, get to know you better. And I wanna to extend to everybody the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this new year. May this new year be full of blessing and peace, may it be full of his grace and his kindness and his goodness, and most of all, may you know that. I have a friend that several years ago in graduate school he began graduate school, and he went to, up to campus, and he met several of his professors. So he met his New Testament professor. He was in, uh, he was in uh, um, divinity school. He met his New Testament professor. He met his Old Testament professor. And then he briefly got a chance, because this particular professor had to leave, he briefly got a chance to meet his Christian ethics professor. It was really great for him to meet all of those professors, and he thought, okay, well, I've at least met him. Now when school starts, at least we've we've met at least one time. His daughter that year was starting kindergarten. And on the first day of her kindergarten year, he was in charge to go pick his daughter up from school at the end of the day. Like most days, it was a madhouse. There were cars parked on both sides of the street, just parked there, waiting to pick up their kids. And my friend was not having a good day. He was frustrated by other things going on in life. He was stressed out. And he was particularly annoyed at how long and how chaotic the situation was for picking up his daughter. And then there's that one person that sent him over the top. You know, everybody's parked and nobody likes being in traffic. But then there's one guy that can't pull over and doesn't want to wait in the back. So he pulls up in the middle and just stops his car. Turns it off and everybody can see He's just reading the paper, waiting for his daughter to come out. So there's several people that get up, and they have to go around him. And it's just awkward. He's in the way. It's the problem. So my good friend, who's going to divinity school, pulls up behind him. And then as soon as he gets a chance to pull around, he's he's slowly, as he's pulling around, he slows down, lays on his horn reaches across his seat, and as he's blowing on the horn, gives him an obscene gesture. You know, you're number one, that one? Yeah, I've got suspect friends. I admit it, they're they're highly suspect. But he's having one of those days. He leans over and gives them an obscene hand gesture. And it was like he was in slow motion. All of a sudden, the guy who was reading the paper turns <laughs> and their eyes lock. And my friend in slow motion realizes, oh, no. <laughs> he just grossly insulted his Christian ethics professor. And he was positive his Christian ethics professor saw him and knew who he was. (laughs) Now, ironically, that later on that week they had another gathering before classes start, and it was kind of a meal. And so he's a little nervous on the first day, and all of a sudden he feels this shoulder, this tap on his shoulder, and he turns around, and it's his Christian ethics professor. And all he does, ironically, is just saying, hey, back at you. And he smiles really big and gives him another, yeah, suspect divinity school as well. Now, before you throw me under the bus for telling a story about Christians giving obscene gestures to one another, I intend to tell that story for this reason. That story of my friend, there's a ton of irony in that story, right? One, that my friend who's a Christian going to divinity school gives an obscene gesture, right? And then the irony that it's to his Christian ethics professor. You feel the irony? I mean, the irony's thick there, right? But also, because it's ironic, it's funny. It's a little funny. I mean, you can't help, even if you're a little offended going, (laughs) huh. Yeah, that's that's kind of funny. But because it's ironic, and even though it's funny, it's also a little awkward. Some of you didn't laugh as much as you mostly went. Shh. As the college kids like to say, it's a little cringy. Which means, which means embarrassing or awkward or just you know Shh, makes you do this. Did anybody do that? Did anybody go? Shh. Even if it's not you, you cringe. You're like, uh. oh, trust me, my friend, friend cringes as well. And then also, the story's a little over the top. Maybe for a sermon story. But we are entering a four-week series on the book of Jonah. And the reason why I tell this story is because I want you to get a sense of Jonah. We read Jonah and we miss all of these elements because we typically think of Jonah as a kid's story, or we try to explain how these over-the-top claims about fish and being in the stomach of of a big fish, how they can actually be. But I want you to hear early readers and the intent, the Jewishness of this book. This is satire. So in Jonah, we don't always hear this, but I want you to, you may not hear this as you read because we're not accustomed to reading Jonah this way. But as we go through Jonah, I want you to hear it this way. There's an incredible amount of irony in Jonah. It's just what you think should be is exactly the opposite. And because there's irony, there's humor. Now, we may read Jonah, and we just, June just beautifully read the first chapter, and no one laughed. That's okay. We don't take it as a funny book. But there's quite a bit of irony and humor in Jonah chapter one, and really throughout the whole book. And there's also really this cringy moments in Jonah I mean kind of like when you watch if you watch this a comedy or an SNL skit there's irony it's funny and you're like ugh really you had to go there seriously and then all those skits at the same time are just over the top they're like parodies right like it matches reality but it's just over the top too much Like, this is the book of Jonah. You may not instinctually hear Jonah this way, but I want you to hear it this way, with irony, with humor, with cringiness, and just exaggeration, right? In order to get a point to you. So, if you open your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now let's just pause there. Because what is striking about the book of Jonah is that most of the other prophets, they begin with the prophet, with introducing the prophet. Jonah is one of the few prophetic books that begins with a word from the Lord. The very first thing out of the bat is a word from the Lord. And what's interesting is the whole book of Jonah, it begins and it ends with a word from the Lord. God has the first word and God has the very last word. In fact, it almost takes you back to creation in Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks his word and it creates worlds for us to live in. God speaks and new realities happen. And so in in Jonah chapter 1, God intends to create a whole new reality. For not only Jonah, but for Israel, for some sailors, for the Ninevites, in fact, for you and I. But interesting, when Jonah receives this word... Jonah, he liked the world as it was. Or perhaps maybe his response is out of fear. Maybe he's afraid of what this world might be. Those are two valid possibilities. Either he just really loved the way the world was and liked how things were situated. Or he didn't want it, he was afraid of what it could be. And so if you go on in in verse 2, God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And like I said, this is different than other prophetic callings. There's no specific message given to Jonah. He says, go and preach, but he doesn't say what to preach. And what's interesting is, is that Every other prophet is called to be a prophet to God's people. Jonah's the only one called to Gentiles. He's called to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And so for Jonah, his response is, get the heck out of here. So he leaves Samaria, and he goes down to Joppa, which is on the coast. Right? It says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He went down to Joppa... From Joppa, Nineveh is 500 miles to the east. If you can do a mental map. Tarshish, we think, is in southern Spain. 2,000 miles west of Joppa. He not only flees, he flees 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Because see, what Jonah is thinking is, if he can get out... If he can get away from Yahweh, he needs to get out of Yahweh's sacred space, right? Like, in ancient times, the Romans had their gods, the Assyrians had their gods, the Jews had their god, right? And gods are territorial. So if you get out of that region, yeah, Syria's even talking about their gods, right? I don't know how that happened, right? And so if he can get out of sacred space, Tarshish is not sacred space. Yahweh's not there. Joppa is a multicultural city full of non-sacred people. The sea is not sacred space. And so he gets and he thinks his fortunes are going pretty well. He gets to Joppa. He finds a ship right away. This ship that's going to go to Tarshish is going to take him to the ends of the earth. The fare is reasonable. And they let this Jewish guy on without any questions. Like, why would this Jewish guy be going to Tarshish? He thinks it's providential and that he is home free. then in verse 4, it says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea and lightened the ship. So you see this building of this story. The wind comes, the storm comes, the threat of the whole ship breaking apart is happening. But then it gets even worse. It gets so bad that every sailor begins to pray to their own God. But when prayer doesn't work, they become very pragmatic and start saying, okay, what can we get rid of? Start chucking stuff out. Start getting it out. What's interesting about this story and what we what we don't read that's that's ironic about this is that there are in ancient times these classic stories about storms and their meanings. In fact, there are these large tales that become famous about people that endure a storm. And oftentimes people may even wear something, it's known to wear something like a like a a, a necklace with a big piece of wood on it that would sketch out a picture of the storm in order to get people sympathy or even money or to to put people in wonder. Like, you survived that? You were a survivor of that event? Right? It's like going around to your friends. You You were at that? You went to that concert? Whoa. No, 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 wait. You think that's big. What about this? Right? It's like... It's like the, well, when I was in school, we used to have to walk uphill in the snow. Well, when I was in school, we had to walk both ways uphill in the snow, right? One of those. When I was shipwrecked, I had to swim to shore and all I had was a piece of wood. But you don't understand, like I went all the way down with the ship and had to come back and I didn't even have a piece of wood. Well, you don't understand, I did all that and then I drifted for five days. You get my point? The stories get bigger. And if you survive, the more fame you have. But it says, But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. And call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to one each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible, Jonah, for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do, Jonah? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? For they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Not only does Jonah resist the call of God, But he's oblivious to all that's going on around him. As one of my favorite movies says, you always know who's guilty. Because if you get three people together and you put them in jail overnight and you come back the next morning, the one that's asleep is guilty because they know they're caught and they let their guard down. Jonah goes down to the bottom. Oblivious! Oblivious! To the concerns and problems, to the storm, and he falls asleep. But it's not really clear that when the captain comes down to wake him up, say, What are you, why can you sleep through this? Call on your God. It's not really clear that he wakes Jonah up or that he realizes this is Jonah's fault because he comes back up to the top and he says, all right, we're in desperate measures. we got to figure this thing out. So, like they do in the time when this is written, this is a common practice, they cast lots. Who is it? And whoever the lot falls on, that's fate of who is going to be responsible. And it just so happens that when they cast the lot, it falls on Jonah. And it's ironic That the captain of the ship confesses that perhaps it is the God of Jonah who can save them. It's not Jonah that confesses that. Do you see the irony in that? Jonah is God's prophet or his called prophet. He doesn't confess that God can save him. It is the captain that comes down and says, call on your God. Maybe he can save us. And what's even more ironic is they begin asking Job all of these questions. Who's responsible for this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? Who are your people? And it's ironic that these sailors these guys that are in the story who are heathens, they are the ones that remind Jonah of his prophetic calling. So in the response to that, he says, well, I, 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 I'm i a Hebrew. And I worship the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea. And what's even more funny about that is that Jonah confesses he worships the God that creates the sea. And what is his escape route? How ironic and humorous that he thinks he can escape the God who created the sea. So their only response to him is, what are you thinking? He's like an unwitting character in a movie that everyone's appalled at and that the audience giggles at because he's so stupid. You know that character? What have you done? Did you pull the lever? Gosh, he pulls the lever. Seriously, you drank the Kool-Aid? Why? You're an idiot. You know that character in the movie. That the audience laughs at, but everyone in the film is just cringed. They can't believe how stupid this guy is. I mean, they realize he's a prophet. This is his calling. This is his job. It is God who's called him. And you did what? How could you do that? And it goes on, verse 11. But the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it would become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder before them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to him. And now... The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. What's crazy about this story is that once they find out, once the sailors find out that Jonah is responsible, once he confesses to everything and they find out he's responsible, they don't take any action on themselves to resolve the situation. But instead, like children with a parent, they turn to the guy that just got him in trouble, who has not been honest with them, and they turn to him like someone would faithfully turn to a prophet, and they say, tell us what to do now. Do you see the irony in that? Like at this point, would any of you trust Jonah? Don't say yes. You're lying. All the sailors would gather together and say, what do we do now? But instead they turned to Jonah of all people, who hasn't prayed a lick up until this point. Jonah confesses everything and says, it's my fault, throw me in the sea. But what's interesting is, is that unlike Jonah, who doesn't seem to care about the ending of the Ninevites, the sailors actually care that Jonah survives. Because as soon as they hear the the resolution, Jonah says, throw me in the sea. They said, "Mm. let's try paddling back to shore. Maybe for several reasons, right? Maybe to get them all back to shore, or maybe to get at least close enough where they throw Jonah overboard and he's close enough to shore he could swim in. But either way, they fear God. And when they decide to throw him in, they ask for forgiveness. And what's even more ironic is that while it is Jonah who is supposed to make vows and sacrifices to God, it is the heathen sailors that do it. Well, Jonah is nowhere to be found. Do you see the irony? There is a rabbinic commentator. Several hundred years ago. It's an old commentary from a Jewish rabbi. That's meant to be humorous. He comments on this scene in Jonah. And he's commenting on how the sailors must have viewed Jonah at this point. This guy has not been straightforward with them. He gets on a ship. He's sleeping while there's storms going all around. And he's not that forthcoming about who he is and what he's really about. He's the one that's caused all these problems. And so he's not been that honest. So this Jewish rabbinic commentator, he makes this narrative to comment on that he says so what the sailors did right this is just his own commentary is they tied Jonah they tied a rope around him and they lowered him over the side with a rope and they dipped him into the the raging sea up to his knees and the water stopped but to test to see if he was telling the truth they pulled him back up and the storm raged again and because they still weren't sure that this was going to work, really throw you over, if we throw you over, you're going to die. Do we really trust this guy? So the next time they lower him down up to his neck and the water stop. Then they pull him back up. And as they pull him back up, the storm rages again. And then this rabbinic commentator says, and then they finally trusted Jonah and they just cut him loose and he went. What's funny about this story is that in the ancient world, people that survive storms often think of themselves or it is believed that they have received a grace from God or the gods. Even so far that those that survived storms, and many did not, they took it as a sign that they were elected by God for some special purpose. What's ironic is that the heathen sailors survive and Jonah gets dumped overboard. But this is not a story. This is not a story about a wayward individual and divine vengeance. It is a story about, the, about obeying the voice of God And it is ironic and funny and awkward and over-the-top that the heathen sailors who respond to the Word, they respond, and Jonah doesn't. And then Jonah, as he's thrown overboard, he doesn't die because that would be his just desserts. Instead of dying... He's swallowed by a big fish. See, this is a big fish story. And you just shake your head, and you maybe giggle a little bit, and you maybe cringe, and you say that, that's a bit of exaggeration. But it really is funny that Jonah gets swallowed by a fish? That's a funny thing. I mean the luck of it all, right? And it's just cringy because when you actually think getting swallowed by a fish, can you imagine being in the bowels of a fish? Anybody that's ever cleaned a fish? That might be cringy enough. But You live three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. It's the smell alone. It's cringy. And what's most ironic is that Jonah has plunged to the very depths, the very depths of his running away from God and the very depths of the sea. Yet this is where Jonah meets God's grace. Jonah is swallowed by the fish he's swallowed by the grace of God the over the top exaggerated beyond belief grace of God so we just shake our head maybe give a little chuckle Cringe a bit and say, that's a big bit of an exaggeration. And I say, no, that is the grace of God. Let's stand and sing.